From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Whether you have a, a fancy, you know, title on your business card or you have a million dollars in the bank or a billion dollars in the bank, the human instinct, I don't think, is actually that different. People want more. That's Andrew Ross Sorkin. He's a columnist for The New York Times, where he serves as the editor-at-large of DealBook, the daily financial report he founded in 2001. He's also a co-anchor of Squawk Box, a business news program on CNBC. Sorkin is the go-to authority on all things Wall Street, and it's been that way for a long time. In 2009, he authored Too Big to Fail, the definitive account of the 2008 financial crisis. Today, Sorkin joins me to discuss the psychology of Wall Street titans, the relationship between the stock market and the economy, and what it was like to interview Bernie Madoff. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey folks, exciting news. Stay Tuned with Preet has been nominated for a People's Voice Webby Award for Best Episode of a News and Politics Podcast. The episode features my conversation with Dan Goldman last year, who offered us his first interview after serving as lead House Majority Counsel during the first impeachment of President Trump. Head to webbyawards.com to vote. You can also find a direct voting link in the show notes of this episode. Thanks, as always, for your support. Before I get to your questions, I want to mention that you should stick around to the end of the show. I have a special surprise. A one-on-one with my brother, Vinny Barrara. So I'm recording this on the morning of Wednesday, April 21st, and still processing and digesting the historic verdict in the case against Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. And I spoke about it yesterday on the Cafe Insider podcast, and also we talked about the case together with Joyce Vance, and I've received some questions about it, so I'll answer those, and of course, there'll be a lot more to discuss in the coming days. The one thing I want to reiterate is just how important this verdict was not just for the stakeholders in that particular case and the family of George Floyd, but for the country and the sense of relief that so many people have felt, which is natural. I've been in a lot of courtrooms and I've seen and taken a lot of verdicts, including in cases that I personally tried. And I think my heart was beating just as fast 
waiting for the verdict to come back in the Chauvin case as any other case that I had a personal involvement in. Because we had an hour's notice that the verdict was coming and my kids were all home, we all gathered in the family room, which is an unusual event in my house lately, together as a family, see what the verdict was. And I'll never forget that. So the case is not over. More things have to happen. We've gotten questions about the sentencing. As you may know, on the three counts on which Derek Chauvin was convicted, he faces statutory maximums of 40 years, 25 years, and 10 years respectively. Probably won't get that, but those are the statutory maximums. Sentencing will be in about eight weeks. But between now and then, the judge has to take many things into consideration. And here's a question about that in an email from listener Kyle. Hi, Preet. After Chauvin's guilty verdict was read, the judge mentioned something called Blakely factors. Can you explain what that means and how it affects this case? Thanks, Kyle. So the Blakely factors, as they're called, come from a U.S. Supreme Court case from 2004 called Blakely v. Washington. And it's one of a number of cases that basically held that in connection with sentencing, any fact that increases what the proper sentencing should be for a defendant needs to be found beyond a reasonable doubt by the jury. The judge ultimately renders the sentence, imposes the sentence, but if there's some fact like drug weight or something else that affects the range of sentencing, a defendant has a right for that to be determined by the jury. And in Blakely, the Supreme Court held that the presumptive sentence was whatever the sentence would be under the guidelines, federal, state, or otherwise. And here, the prosecution has indicated that it seeks an upward departure from whatever the guidelines would ordinarily suggest, based on a couple of factors, including that the killing of Mr. Floyd happened in the presence of children, that Mr. Floyd was treated with particular cruelty, and that he abused his position of authority as a police officer. Now, although it's the case under Blakely that Chauvin had the right for the jury to decide those things, he waived that right and allowed it to be determined by the court. So the court, when it considers these aggravating factors like particular cruelty and abusive position of authority, will get briefing from the parties. There'll be a hearing, an argument about it, and then the judge will decide. Here's a question in a tweet from Brandon at BJM11, who asks, when Chauvin appeals, one, is the court required to give him another hearing or can that be declined? And two, would a subsequent trial start on a fresh slate or does the prior guilty verdict have any impact? So first, let me say as an initial matter, Chauvin has a right of appeal, no matter what. And in most jurisdictions, there is a, an oral argument. So it wouldn't be a hearing, but there would be an argument in which Chauvin and the prosecutors will argue about whether or not there was some error that the trial court engaged in that should undo the trial verdict. I think by and large, the judge, Judge Cahill did a pretty good job. But the defense lawyer made a record, and every single time he objected to something, and his objection was overruled, can form an arguable basis for appeal. The defense lawyer, for example, complained about how the prosecution, in its rebuttal summation and otherwise, belittled the defense. There was an objection to proceeding with trial on the timetable that it did, and in the venue where it did, because of potential prejudice that came from the $27 million settlement on the eve of the trial commencing. There were issues about jurors. There's an issue about Representative Maxine Waters having said something about not accepting an acquittal in the case. All of those points were made by defense counsel. They could form the basis for an appeal. My judgment is very, very unlikely for any of those points to be successful. But in case it were, going to your second question, and the verdict were overturned, and there was a new trial scheduled, the prior guilty verdict per se has no effect. You begin with a clean slate, with the presumption of innocence, with the overwhelming burden of proof resting on the prosecutor's shoulders to have to prove once again to a unanimous jury. There's some complications that could potentially arise depending on how the second trial would unfold, which I don't think will take place, but 
to honor the hypothetical, I'll, I'll mention a couple of them. One is jury selection will be a little bit more difficult. It was already difficult given how sensational the case was and how much information and public information there was about the case to find people who knew the, some of the facts of the case. Could they be fair or not? It's going to be hard to find people who were not aware of the fact of the prior guilty verdicts. You know, naturally that might affect some people's abilities to be fair if there were a second trial. So jury selection will be a challenge. And then second, to the extent some of the witnesses in a potential second trial testify in a way that's at variance with how they testified in the first trial, you can imagine the judge allowing cross-examination of those witnesses based on the different testimony. They would have to be careful not to indicate that there was a prior trial of Derek Chauvin and that there was a guilty verdict. There are ways to get around that. But anytime people testify twice, it can create complications for those witnesses and the side that calls that witness. And as I mentioned, jury selection might be a little bit trickier. But as I said, I don't expect there to be a successful appeal here. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. My guest today is Andrew Ross Sorkin. He's a financial columnist for The New York Times, and a co-anchor of Squawk Box on CNBC. Sorkin is perhaps the most well-sourced journalist on Wall Street. Every morning, he publishes DealBook, a business newsletter that is essential reading for CEOs and policymakers alike. Today, Sorkin joins me to discuss CEO pay, how money changes people, and whether we should be worried about some of the recent trends on Wall Street. 
Andrew Ross Sorkin. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Long overdue. I don't know what's taken us so long. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan and a, and a longtime listener, so it's a privilege <laughs> to be here with you. And first-time caller. Yes, very much so. You know, before we start, I, I just want to say one thing um, off the top. We were scheduled to record this interview on Tuesday of this week, April 20th, and the time set, you know, for some days, and you're a super busy person, the time set was 4.30, and we got on uh, the Zoom, as, as we do now in the pandemic, and the whole world was waiting for the verdict in the Derek Chauvin case, and you very gallantly suggested, you know, let's put this off so you and us and, and everyone else can see what happens with the verdict. It's a big, important date, and so I appreciate that. Um, and we rescheduled for this morning because you were a gentleman. I appreciate it. Well, I, I, I appreciate you. And I also knew that we were, you know, this, this was a big moment in our country. And, uh, and also given what you do and the important commentary work you do and everything else, uh, that this was something that you needed to be focused on. So I thought interviewing me was not, not going to work. Well, this is very important, but I think, I think, I think, I think it'll be a less distracted and more focused interview uh, and as far as I'm concerned, it was the right result yesterday, and we'll see what more good comes of that. Here's a thing that happened recently, and it made me think of a conversation that you and I had some years ago, and that is the passing of Bernie Madoff, the, the most epic Ponzi schemer in history, yep. who was prosecuted by my office, the Southern District of New York. And you had occasion to spend a lot of time with him, I think five years ago, 2016? Yep. What did you feel when he passed away? And, and tell folks what it was like to spend hours with him in his prison. Oh, goodness. Um, you know, what I felt more than anything as a journalist was actually a regret uh, because I, even to this day, don't believe that the public got to see him truly face, not justice, because obviously he was in prison, but face real questions about his conduct and his behavior. And as you know, what I was trying to do and the reason I was going down and visited with him in prison twice was effectively to persuade him and ultimately the prison to allow us to bring cameras inside for the first time because he had he's never he's done some interviews, uh, but all you know written either in books or magazines or, or whatnot. But to me, for the public to see what for the public to see what deception looks like and to viscerally be able to sort of see that, I always thought would be very worthy in part because as a culture, I don't think oftentimes, and I don't mean to say this cynically, but that we're, that we as a culture are not skeptical enough, especially when it comes to our own personal finances and really trying to understand what's going on with these things. And I think it, it would have served a, just an important public service for people to, to, to see it. You not like, because, a, like a warning, like a cautionary well, tale? I, I, I believe it, not because it would have been revelatory insofar as that his answers would have shocked you, but because it, it at least for me, it was just such a profound um, demonstration of deception. And in, in fact, even for me, when I remember visiting with him, there were times he would tell these you know, enthralling stories that all sounded true and you'd sort of believe it. And then I remember leaving the prison once standing in the parking lot and it was like, you couldn't tell what was fact or fiction, you know? And Did I you think find that, him to be contrite at all? The first time I went down there, uh, he was 
not contrite at all, not contrite at all. I mean, it was, it was like the opposite of contrite, which I also think would have been fascinating for the public to see. The second time I went down, he, I mean, in truth, I think he, he cried for like two hours. It was, it was so, it was fascinating, which also, of course, raises so many questions about what I saw the first time. And maybe this goes back to the idea of, you know, the way a sociopath acts. But um, what did you ask him that got him to cry for two hours? It's funny. I'm not sure what inspired the crying. I do remember talking about his son who had committed suicide. But I just think, I think he was so sad about his condition. Uh, and so the question was, was he contrite or was he just depressed about his own situation? When you talk to him, did, did you think to yourself, I can see how this guy fooled and ripped off so many people, many of whom were sophisticated, not all, but many. Or did you find yourself thinking, how the hell did this guy swindle people out of, you know, literally billions of dollars? Oh, no, I could see it. I could see it. In fact, it was so clear to me because he he was a remarkable storyteller. I mean, look, here I was. I know his background. I know the story. I know he swindled billions of dollars out of people. And then, I, and then I'm believing certain stories he's telling me in the moment. In fact, then I... As I said to you, I had to almost had to double back in my head to realize, okay, even that I'm not sure was true. So, yeah, no, there was something he he had a, to say he had a talent. Maybe is overstating the case, but he had he had a talent to be convincing, no question. In your travels, talking to people, you know, we, I just use the term sophisticated person, who we think of as somebody who you know sort of inured to lies and you know, being cheated and time after time. And I write about some of these examples in my, in my book, you know, people who we think of as, you know, polished and sophisticated and smart get duped. Do we make too much of a distinction in the financial world between sophisticated and unsophisticated people? Yes and no. I, you know, I think that there is a level of sophisticated person who clearly understands the markets and, finance and economics at a level, frankly, that puts them at a remarkable advantage. I mean, I would argue to you that the markets unto themselves have never been a, a true level playing field in part because of that and because of a mm -hmm. sort of financial literacy that exists. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of folks, even at that level, that are willing to sort of either close their eyes or uh, believe in, in all sorts of things. And I think, it's, by the way, I think we're in a bit of a you know, whatever you think this Dogecoin, Bitcoin, whatever, there's a bubble going on uh, of some sort with lots of arguably very sophisticated people who believe they're believers. And uh, even, even the most sophisticated, I think, can, can get sucked into certain things. You mentioned financial literacy, and I've asked this question of a number of people. What do you think is the rate or level of financial literacy in America? Abysmally low. I think most people have no idea. Is that because people don't watch CNBC every day? No, it's because some of this stuff is hard, but more importantly, it's really not taught in most places, especially at young ages. So the idea of credit, is credit a good thing? Is credit a bad thing? How does credit really work? That's a fundamental part of our economy uh, and I can tell you the credit it can be a great thing and credit can be a terrible thing, but you have to understand it to some degree before you can even begin to even th 
think about it or opine on it. Or, or it. So I'm just not sure that people appreciate a, a lot of these issues. I think, it, and I think it has a huge implication for public policy, how we think about tax policy in America, how we think about R&D, how we think about incentives. I mean, all of these, these things, you know, have such a huge impact on society. And yet I think if you really talk to people around the country, there's just a very, and I hate to say it because you're effectively, people think that you're effectively saying they're ignorant. And that's not what I'm, what I'm trying to say, but I think there's not necessarily a, a, a particularly acute sophistication about understanding a lot of these issues. And separate from the policy issue, it has an impact and effect on people's own personal finances, right? And then on the one hand, you say, well, if you're not sophisticated or, uh, you know, very sort of immersed in these issues, how to manage your money, you're supposed to, you're supposed to rely on a financial planner or some other person, you know, a stockbroker, if you have enough money to invest in stocks. And then you have people like Bernie Madoff who take advantage. And it's hard to know who to trust and who not to trust. And I guess one question I have is, I was only half kidding about CNBC. If you're a thoughtful person who's listening to this program and you want to become more educated on issues of finance and the stock market and everything else, what's your advice to them? Should they watch you every day? Are there books that they can read? Should they pick up the Wall Street Journal? Is there something more obvious than that or less obvious? I think it's a combination of of all of those things. But I think the most important thing is to actually do, do research. I do think, look, I think that you could, I think there's some great instructional stuff online that's really helpful. I think you need to be reading the newspaper every day, whether it's the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, hopefully deal book. Um, yeah, uh, look, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to mention the Wall Street Journal, Mr. New York Times. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, I, I, but, but you should I absolutely- I forgot who I was talking to. No, but you should absolutely, I mean, I, I, I think everybody should be- You read trying. all the papers, right? Oh, I, I, for me personally, I read all this, everything. But I, but I think all of that is, is helpful in terms of trying to get your head around what all of this means and, and whether it's your personal finances that you're trying to figure out or whether it's some of these larger, as, as I said, policy issues and where you stand politically on them, I think it's important to try to to get educated on, on, on what all of the different component parts are. And by the way, also to listen to both sides, especially when it comes to the policy stuff, because, you know, these things are on the surface Feel, you know, oftentimes sound very political, but if you actually dig in and you can look at the numbers and it, once you understand it, you can make your own decisions about it. So maybe you can help educate me on something, on a okay. couple of things with respect to the stock market. Mm -hmm. So the stock market, politicians say with great emphasis, the stock market is not the economy. It does not reflect the economy. Is that a slogan or is that correct? It's right and wrong. And um, the stock market reflects what we'll call the investor class. And some of the investor class, of course, are retail investors, which means, you know, people on the street who have, who have views and, and more and more, you know, uh, people on the street, if you will, are, and I'm not talking about Wall Street, um, are investing. So uh, there is a sort of, I don't know if you call it wisdom of crowds uh, issue going on, but it's what the market is projecting out what they, what people think the economy is going to look like 12 months, 18 months, 24 months out from now. So, you know, during the pandemic, one of the things that I think blew everybody's mind, by the way, including my own all the time, was, you know, we'd hear these terrible things going on in terms of unemployment rate, the economy falling, it, you know, it just terrible, everything tragic. 
And yet you'd see the stock market go up and you'd be like, what is going on here? This sounds, this is crazy town, right? This makes no sense. And the truth is what was happening where investors were saying, okay, we're not looking at what happened today or even in the rearview mirror of what, what happened yesterday. We're effectively making a, a bet that in 12 months from now, in 18 months from now, you you know, the vaccine will be out. People will go back to work. And what's what's that world going to look like? So while the, I guess, I guess the answer to your question is while while the stock market doesn't necessarily reflect the economy per se, especially right now, and by the way, people can be wrong because they're guessing, right? There's a bit of, this is all a bit speculative. Uh, the speculation, if you will, is that the economy will be better. And so there is a bit of a correlation, but not in in the here and now. Should everyone who has some savings be in the stock market? Oh goodness, I I hate to. I, no, <laughs> do, we, I, do we need do we need to have some kind of um, caveat here and say, uh, Mr. Andrew Ross Sorkin is not providing financial advice, and you invest at your own risk. Thank you, counselor. Is that, is that, thank is that you, better? counselor. Okay. Um, yes, because I actually uh, I don't like to uh, offer stock true stock advice. Look, my sense is that if you have some savings um, over time, it is better to be in the stock market than not on a long term basis, as long as you're a long term investor. You know, if you're buying into a stock index and you plan to be there for 10, 20, 30 years, yes, absolutely. If you're telling me that you need this money in six months from now, no, it's a very bad idea to put that money in the stock market. Because anything can happen. You can, you can enter a pandemic. Anything can happen. A pandemic can happen. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? But do you think, I guess you sort of answered this, is there any real rationality to the market? And you've been covering it and writing about it and thinking about it for years and years. So your pronouncement matters to me. I do think it's reflective of where the economy is going. I think that's that's true. I mean, I think you, you saw where we were. Where people f- think it's going. Where, where people think it's going. Yes, I think and, it is. And a, people are often wrong, just like they are about politics and about Donald Trump and everything else. People are often wrong, but I think it, it, it as a as a signal indicator, if you will, of of where people think things are going. Absolutely. And by the way, you know, there are companies and they it, that make money and you can see their balance sheet and you can see if they're making more money this quarter or less money this quarter and if they're employing more people or less people. And uh, there's no question you look at a company like Amazon. Now, its stock has gone through the roof. Uh, it's actually come back a little bit, but that company has been a great success story and was became an even greater success story during the pandemic. And the stock market reflected that. Well, now its earnings are huge. I, look, I remember when Amazon began and had its rise. And I would hear people say about Amazon what a lot of people say about some other companies, and maybe there are distinctions to be made. But in the late 90s, I might have this off by you know a few years, but in the late 90s and the early 2000s, Amazon kept growing and growing and growing, and there was no profitability in sight. Right. I remember the same thing. People, people used to call it, I remember there was a cover story that said, maybe it was, it was Fortune or Forbes, said Amazon.com. .com. <laughs> right. And how did Amazon do during the pandemic? Fabulously. I mean, unbelievably. And and profitability? Huge. Um, Gigantic. But that, that required a remarkable level of patience among the investor class. Um, and there was a belief that, that Jeff Bezos was going to get there. He was sort of given dispensation in a way, frankly, that most companies don't have to make these kind of long-term investments to lose money for as long as he did. And along the way, it's worth noting that while you and I and most 
people think of Amazon as uh, you know, a, a prime membership or something that, that brings you packages to your home, a huge part of the business developed in the middle of it uh, called AWS, which is effectively a, a cloud service, which is actually the most profitable part of that business. And it helped to some degree subsidize the rest of everything else and allow that to then build and grow. But do people, to some people, I guess this is true. As I say it, I realize it must be true of some folks. They look at the Amazon story and they think back, well, you know, I thought that lots of people thought of Amazon.com as Amazon.com, as you mentioned. And now when I have an investment opportunity with respect to something that's new and different as Amazon was at the time, and it's not profitable, and there's no near-term expectation of profitability, I think to myself, well, this could be the next Amazon. And I could be on easy street and early retirement if I put all my money in this. How often does that happen? I mean, that's the, what you're, what you're speaking the to American is, dream. <laughs> is the American dream. But in many ways, Amazon was the shoot the moon American dream and it succeeded. And the truth is that so many of the other companies that also had no earnings or revenue uh, back then disappeared and went bankrupt. And so it is very hard to really be able to choose and be able to identify a company at that early stage as a winner. You know, the venture capital model is that, you know, effectively most of the investments are going to fail. And you're, you're effectively trying to, you're hoping a couple of your investments, you know, are grand slam home runs uh, because the rest of them, you're not even going to get to first base. And, and so it really depends on how you think about how you invest and do you have a portfolio? You know, if you're, if you're investing in 30 different companies and you're sort of just praying uh, and hoping against hope that one works, that might actually not be a bad way to do it. If you're putting your chip down on one of these companies and that's it, that's, that's a riskier play. So we talked a little bit about sophisticated people, sophisticated investors, whatever that means. But there is a, you know, a definition that is applicable in connection with putting money into a hedge fund. Mm -hmm. And you spend a lot of time thinking about hedge funds. Um, I have from a prosecutorial standpoint, and we prosecuted people who are hedge fund managers, prosecuted firms that are, in, in fact, hedge funds themselves. And, and this was not a concern of mine when I was in office. Um, my concern was about insider trading and criminality and misconduct and, and ripping people off and that sort of thing. As a practical matter, do you know what percentage of hedge funds over time beat the S&P 500? Oh, for the most part, they don't. They uh, don't. So, expl so explain this to me. Any idiot like myself, and I don't mean to call other people idiots. I'm calling myself an idiot. If you do what they say uh, and you dollar cost average, meaning every period, if you're lucky enough to have excess you know, savings, and I am, and you put a certain amount of money in the S&P 500, it's kind of idiot proof, to use that term again. And over time, you have a certain gain on your investment. Uh, and there's very low cost. I don't have to prove myself to have you know, certain metrics to qualify as a sophisticated investor. And then there are other people who have millions of dollars and they put them into these fancy hedge funds and I do better. How do hedge funds thrive if that's the case? I don't get it. Okay, so... <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a dumb question, but I, no. for the life of me, I don't get it. So first of all, you're right. And you are right there with Warren Buffett, uh, who- That's good company. Is that good company? Good, it's a very good company. And he has advised uh, everybody. He writes it in his, own, uh, in his own annual letters. 
He says, look, if I was telling my family what to do, I would tell them to buy a stock index. I would not tell them to buy uh, into uh, a hedge fund or, or, or put my money uh, elsewhere. In fact, he's had a running bet against hedge funds with certain hedge funds about whether they're going to beat the index. And invariably, he's been right. So it's some really small. I wish I had the, the figure in front of me, but it's some it's not the case. It's like, well, you know, 65 percent beat the index and 35 percent don't. It's some it's some very small number over time. And, you know, and I, I know I have friends who work at hedge funds and I like them and they're very smart. Uh, and and they're upstanding people, but if if we're talking about an area that is susceptible to analysis and um, you know mathematical analysis and rationality, I'm going to repeat my question because I like asking it. What the hell are people doing, putting billions of their dollars into a thing that over time, by almost every measure, at least in the last 20 years, maybe it was not true before that, by every measure cannot outperform the S and P 500. Two things. You're talking about the American dream. People dream. They 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 want. They believe that they can outperform the market. And because some of these hedge funds do for a short period of time, they want to play in that arena. That's the, that's the look. They're looking for the lottery ticket. It's a lot. This is a lottery ticket game. Think about uh, Bill Ackman. So Bill Ackman's a, a famed hedge fund manager who has been remarkably successful in certain years. I mean, literally this last year, he's up some 70% during the pandemic. He called it 100% right and, and, and kudos to him. But there have been years where he has lost a small fortune um, making terrible bets. Small, small fortune to him. Small <laughs> to fortune. To be able to big fortune. Small fortune to him, exactly. But, 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 the, but the point is that I think, unfortunately, what happens is people say to themselves, I want to, I want that lottery ticket. That's, that's why people go to the, that's why people go to the bodega to buy the lottery ticket. And, and this is in some, to some degree, that's, that's the, this is the equivalent of that, just with a lot more money. I hear you. Mm -hmm. But by definition, the people who are permitted to invest in hedge funds by a lot of people's metrics have already won the lottery. By and large, they are millionaires already. And so you're saying the millionaires want a lottery ticket too? Absolutely. I mean, look, the, the, it does- That will come as a surprise. Like that now, I mean, you know, you and I are, are talking about this sort of, I don't mean to say it's blase, right. but that's a little bit of a shocking thing to the ears of the average American. That people who have millions of dollars, the kind of money that most Americans will never see in their lifetime, that those people are prepared to invest in ways that they feel are lottery tickets for them to go from millionaire to billionaire, I, I suppose, and end up not doing as well as somebody who has the patience of Warren Buffett or someone else. But isn't that one of the great lessons about money? Um, you know, I think money does change people. And I don't want to suggest it doesn't at all in any way. But I do think that one of the, the truths that I've discovered oh, after covering this, this world for the last 20 years is that whether you have a, a fancy, you know, title on your business card or you have a million dollars in the bank or a billion dollars in the bank, the human instinct, I don't think, is actually that different. People want more. People want more. You know, there's a great line in Wall Street, not, not the original Wall Street, which, of course, has the, the great, great greed is good line, but in, the, uh, in Wall Street 2, which was not as good a movie. In, it, in was, truth. it was not as good. But there was, there was a question that I think... Either Michael Douglas or somebody asked, and they said, See, I find that everybody has a number, and it's usually an exact number. So what is yours? 
more. <laughs> Look, you, you covered these cases. You know, there was, you know, these insider trading cases we brought when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, one against a man by the name of Raj Rajaratnam, who's mm-hmm. a billionaire. Yep. Another against a man by the name of Rajat Gupta, who was estimated to be worth about $100 million. $100 million. Pretty good. And, you know, when you bring a prosecution, you're not overly concerned about the psychology of why someone does it. But the sense I got in my armchair psychologist role is that he wanted more. And he looked at a guy like, you know, Raja Rutnam, and this is speculation on my part and what I know of human nature. And he said, I can't believe that guy has a billion and I only have a hundred million. And so he entered into a conspiracy with him and gave him inside information and lost his reputation in the process, convicted at trial and went to prison and he already had $100 million because more. Because more. And I would also just add to that by saying what you see over and over again, especially among those who have a lot to begin with, is in certain cases, it's actually not even about the money per se in terms of what that money can buy. It becomes at some level, at, at those levels, a scorecard for for power and for, for pride and for uh, – Status. Status. I mean, that's, I think, I think that's what happens. It, it, you know, it's so interesting because I think there are people at the, you know, who, who don't have money, who are robbing stores or, uh, you know, doing other things because they, they want to, they want to pay the mortgage or they want to pay for rent. That's different. That's a sort of a very different motivation. When we were talking about insider trading, when we were doing those cases, you know, there was sort of a revelation, at least that I had. Because the defense always is, I mean, the inverse of all of this is when someone gets caught who's already rich, they say, well, why would I do that? Why would my client do that? He's already rich, right? right. P- playing on the question that I just asked you. And of course, it's much more complicated to explain the more philosophy, um, you know, to put it tersely. And then you realize that in, in many contexts, it's the people who are already successful and already have a lot of money who are built a certain way that they cheat. So for example, the analogy I was uh, used was people who doped up. And, you know, it wasn't the, the, the crappy player, you know, who was the, the backup quarterback or, you know, the benched baseball player. It was people like Lance Armstrong, who did work hard, who did have probably more talent than anyone else in the world, but he wanted more and he wanted to always win. And that's not something that people are necessarily, you know, built to understand. And you look at, at people who are successful like that and you say, well, why would you, why would you, you're already the best in the world. Why would you cheat? And even for Lance Armstrong, right? Because more. Because more, but also, and I've spent time with him as well. Uh, you like to hang out, you know, you should hang out with me. I love, you know what? It's, I love fascinating stories and fascinating characters and fascinating people and invariably- Crooks, you like well, crooks. But the truth is that there's a great <laughs> drama to, to crooks and to people who have had these ups and downs. And I'm somebody who believes ultimately that underneath it all, if you can get to, if you can actually get there to them, and sometimes you can't, uh, that there's a way to understand it. Not, not necessarily a way to accept what they've done, but I'm always fascinated to try to understand why they think what they think and why, why they thought in the moment that, that they you know, conducted the crime or whatever it was, uh, you know, how they thought they were going to get away with it. But so much of these these examples that you're talking about are 
some of the most competitive people in the world, whether in sport or on Wall Street, it's a it's a battle of wits, right? People are trying to outsmart each other. That's part of the you know, on Wall Street, by the way. That's part of the business. It's how do you outsmart the other person? And so, sometimes I, outsm- I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. But sometimes out right. But sometimes outsmarting the other person, unfortunately, they're a little too smart for their own good. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. You've interviewed a lot of people who have a lot of money. And over, I'm going to ask you to play armchair psychologist for a second. Do you find that by and large, they are more happy, less happy, or no different from people of ordinary means? Goodness. Mostly no different. I don't know if they're materially less happy per se, uh, but I think sometimes money obviously can create great unhappiness because uh, people are fighting over money and changes relationships and dynamics and all sorts of things. Happiness, look, maybe some of them get to go on a better vacation. Um, I do think, you know what, what, the, what money does do, and I've, and people have said this to me many times before, is it insert while while it can create lots of issues for certain people, depends on what how much money we're talking about. It can take sort of one issue off the table as something that paying the bills, paying the bills that, that you're not thinking that those people are not thinking about that in the same way that most Americans are. Most Americans, I think, are spending uh, you know a decent part of their their life thinking about. Paying the bill. Am I going to have enough money? Am I going to have my kids? Are my kids going to be able to go to school? Am I going to pay or am and I going to in, loan? <clears throat> there's insecurity yep. if you lose your job. And look at, look at the pandemic. And, you know, people who have a lot of money, you know, had a better time of it. Totally. During the pandemic because they had a cushion. Exactly. In many ways, by the way, it all, you know, money also allows people to take risks that they might not otherwise take as well because of the cushion that you just talked about. Well, it's, you know, this is the the mathematics of compounding interest or whatever other analogy you want to use. It's a lot easier to get to 2 billion from 1 billion 
than to get from zero to 1 billion. And, and, and from 1 million to 2 million, then from zero to 1 million, right? A hundred percent. But, you know, I always think about um, Dick Fold. Richard Fold was the CEO of Lehman Brothers, you know, before the financial crisis um, and into the financial crisis. And he's somebody who had over a billion dollars of stock in his company. And he rode the stock all the way down to $56,000. And people said, There's a, there was a guy who was a true believer, but if you turn the story around, he's somebody who also had made and had in the bank several hundred million dollars already. And so he was he was able in many ways to take a remarkable risk. And while it may have looked like he had a billion dollars of stock in his company, you know, all the skin in the game that we always say we, you know, people talk about wanting in terms of trying to incentivize people, in many ways, it was just the cherry on top. And maybe he could afford to lose that cherry. Yeah. Although some people, you know, in his position still would not have done that. Can I ask you something else that angers folks and angers me too? Okay. <laughs> since we didn't really we didn't really resolve the hedge fund issue. Yep. And that's that CEO compensation. Uh-huh. And I know that over time there's been, you know, a more dramatic gap between either the lowest paid person at a company or the average paid person at the company and the CEO. And most people in America are not CEOs. But there is a question about what value they bring and whether their interests are aligned with the companies. And this was an extraordinary report that came out um, not that long ago. And it sets forth that CEO pay generally surged during the pandemic. Median pay for the chief executives of more than 300 of the biggest U.S. public companies went from 12.8 million to 13.7 million. And then most dramatically, um, (laughs) and people love to hate on this kind of thing, myself included, the CEO of Norwegian Cruise Line- Unbelievable. Which recorded a $4 billion loss last year. Because I don't, did you take a cruise last year, Andrew? I, I'm not sure. I didn't. I don't think I've ever taken a cruise, to be honest with you. I don't think I ever will. I, I did take a cruise once with my family. That CEO of Norwegian Cruise Line, his pay doubled to $36.4 million. Mm-hmm. Not that you're, you know, his keeper, but what the hell is going on there? Well, I don't know if I can speak to the Norwegian cruise issue, but I can, I can definitely speak to the larger issue of CEO pay, which is literally makes no sense uh, at all. And the reason is, it really is, I mean, I don't know if you could you could bring a RICO case uh, against companies. And <laughs> well, not now. Maybe not now, but- Podcasters don't have RICO capabilities. But, you know, what's so strange about CEO pay is it's, it's set by a board, oftentimes with consultants. The consultants, of course, are are, are paid by, by the board to keep effectively ratchet, I would argue, ratcheting up these numbers. But it's not about, it's, there's nothing about competitive pricing. So, you know, if you, Preet, or I were to, were to hire somebody today, I think you would probably say to yourself, I want to try to hire somebody for whatever that job is uh, at a, a fair market rate. You probably don't want to pay too much more than that. And hopefully you don't want to pay uh, too much less than that because arguably you would like to make this a sustainable job. Um, but that's not the conversation that happens in the boardroom. Nobody says, is this, you know, if the CEO left tomorrow and had to go get a job somewhere else, you know, what would they get paid? Uh, you know, how can they, can they really, are they really also going to get paid $50 million a year? Or there, is there another place that, was, that is going to do that? And, and I've always been sort of struck by the fact that there is no genuine market in that way. Now, yes, there are certain executives uh, that that probably could get some of some of that uh, kind of pay, but I think most of them uh, probably couldn't. 
The one other thing I'd say is, you know, we look at public company CEOs because we see these numbers and they're public and you get to see it. But the thing that's extraordinary that often is not covered enough is the numbers of private companies. And, you know, you talked about hedge funds and, 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 and the like. There are people, forget about CEOs making $40 million a year. There are people making $800 million a year. I mean, literally $800 million. And I'm not just talking about people who have stock in their company because the stock went up. They're, you know, you look at Steve Schwartzman at Blackstone, he's made enormous amount of money. I mean, just literally off of the fees of the company uh, in, in a given year. Um, some of these other hedge fund managers have, have, have done remarkably. And so- Well, but it's, it's one thing, and those are extraordinary figures, and, and I don't know how those places do overall, but it's one thing to make a lot of money if the company is making a lot of money and you're taking some share of that. But the logic of of making an enormous amount of money and having an increase in your salary when other people are being laid off seems just not just nonsensical, but downright corrupt to people. Are they right to feel that way? I think they are um, in many ways, especially when the, when a company is is, is failing or where a company is not you know not doing well. It seems crazy that you would be compensating the the CEO for more. The look, this is the complicated part to me about capitalism and how we think about employees in America. All too often, I would argue over the last, say, 30, 40 years, employees are thought of in the same way that simply thought of as costs. Maybe just think about it as costs. You know, you could have a, you could spend money on technology, you could spend money on people, you could spend money on marketing, you could spend money on this, you could spend money on that. And so when a company takes out cost, whether they are people or whether they are light bulbs, the investor class treats them the same. And that's that's the problem that we've sort of lost a sense of humanity in all of this. And I, I think it's coming back a little bit in, in terms of the conversation that the business community is now having about the role that they play in society. But I, I think it still has a long way to go. I'm going to move on to something else that makes people angry. And I think this makes you angry too. And we've talked about this. You know, we mentioned insider trading before. So you're a journalist. You've done very well. And you talk about companies and you talk to a lot of people who are at companies. Are you allowed under the rules of your journalistic employers, the New York Times or CNBC, either or both, are you allowed to invest and trade in individual stocks? Not at all. Why is that? One is I'm often privy to effectively inside information. I, I you know, My job is to ferret out information before it reaches the public. Um, and secondly, um, I would never want, and neither would the news organizations that I work for, ever want there to be even a scintilla of a question about um, my motivations or incentives to write or, or, or report or talk about uh, a particular issue or a particular news item. I mean, to me, that's, that's sacrosanct, right? I mean, and so- Yes, absolutely. So, and, and no, not to, to, um, to downplay your importance and influence- because you are influential. <laughs> but but let me ask the follow-up question. Are you, are you now or have you ever been a member of the House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate? I, I have not. Uh, I'm not now, nor have I ever been, <laughs> nor do I imagine I ever will. And if elected, I shall not serve. Um, and, and would you agree with me that those people, senators and representatives, have real power and authority as lawmakers? Correct? Absolutely. 
Yeah, I don't know why I'm doing it this no, way. No, <laughs> you're doing it like a prosecutor should. I'm with you. Every once in a while, I feel like doing a direct examination. No, and this is the right way to do it because it's it, 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 it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. And, and members of Congress mm-hmm. can invest and trade in individual stocks even though on a regular basis they serve on committees and they vote on legislation, even if it's not something that they're the chair of the committee for, but vote all the time on things that they presumably have either inside information about or some conflict of interest, or the same two things that you talked about. And we put up with that. I mean, I, you know, I, I was a staffer. We, we, we talked about this before you wrote your column a couple of months ago that was excellent. I was just a staffer and I found it, you know, crazy to trade in individual stocks because all day long I had meetings with people and there were folks who had interests in the telecommunications industry, various technology fields, et cetera. And this is why you get these questions about members of the Senate in the last year and no cases were brought, but there was a case brought against a particular congressman who was pardoned by the president, engaged in communications of insider trading while on the White House lawn. But what what the hell is going on with that? Why, why doesn't Congress police itself better and say, you know what? If Andrew Ross Sorkin, who again, not to downplay it, is a mere journalist, ethics requires that he not trade in individual stocks. How about our elected representatives in Congress? <laughs> uh, look, it, and seen, and seen. I, I, I don't understand it. I can't get, I can't get my head around it. Uh, Congress has been unwilling to police itself. Uh, the regulatory agencies have been unwilling to make it a priority to try to police them. You know. I wrote this column effectively suggesting that the SEC stand up and say, we're going we're gonna to start policing Congress ourselves. Of course, the conundrum, if you're running the, if you're Gary Gensler running the SEC is, um, you know, your budget is set by these same people. And so I think over the years, no regulator uh, appointed or otherwise has really wanted to, you know, bite the hand that feeds it. And that is the problem. And, and, and asking people, uh, to police themselves has never been a uh, particularly successful strategy. And so so here we are. And I think it's going to take some real leadership from somebody. Uh, I'm not sure who, who who's going to be the one to stand up to say enough is enough. Because why should we even have to, why should the American, the American public has so much skepticism and cynicism already about politics and about policy and how it's made. Why not just take this off, take this piece off the table? I mean, it's just, it's just so it's so crazy that this is even allowed to happen when, it, when as you've said, you know, I'm not allowed to own stocks. Uh, there's a lot of businesses that don't allow their employees to own stocks where they have to go through, you know, remarkable pre-approval, re- remarkable vetting if programs. A, and if you're like at a that. law firm, generally, you have to do that. Mm-hmm. If you're a staff member at the SEC, I think you have to do yep. that. And but Congress doesn't have to do anything. Anyway, put that on the list of things uh, in your platform for when you when you run. And by the way, full office. disclosure, I should say that I uh, am allowed and do own shares of my two employers. So I do own shares of the New York Times Company and Comcast, but I am a, a long-term holder, as they say. Got it. That makes sense. Here's a thing that you need to help me understand and other people understand. So everyone, I think, over time has come to understand the idea of an initial public offering and going public and people have a general sense of what that means. Now there's a new thing called a SPAC. What on God's earth is a SPAC and should we be concerned about that thing? We should be so concerned about it. Um, here's what's happening. People are trying to call it what they call an IPO 2.0. This is the new version of, of going public. <laughs> it's 2.0 uh, because more. And what it is effectively is 
there are effectively investors who are starting what's called a blank check company. They go out and they, they actually do have a real IPO and they raise money, let's say a couple hundred million dollars, a billion dollars. And it's called a blank check company because literally the company does nothing except take that money and go find an acquisition target. Usually a private company that effectively is then going to be brought public, if you will, sort of through the back door, if you think about it like this, into the public markets through this publicly traded company. So, so you avoid a lot of scrutiny. You avoid a lot of all of disclosures the, all you of have the to make. rules that are applied to an IPO, which effectively means you know if you're a company going public for the first time, you typically can't make you know crazy future projections about what's going to happen three, four, five years from now. Um, the SECs looked you know down upon that. Um, there's a, there's a lot you know you go through a whole process, a roadshow. Uh, investors have to look through your books. It's a very difficult and often arduous process. This SPAC idea in many ways sort of short circuits uh, that process. And most of the companies that are going public through this don't have revenue. They, this brings us back to you know the Amazon. So they, 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 they don't have revenue, they don't have profits. And so they have to tell you what they're going to be doing three, four, five years from now. Of course, call me in three or four or five years from now and we'll see how accurate those projections are. But there's a lot of investors that have gotten a lot of excited, a, a lot of of excitement around these things, possibly too excited. But so, so I understand how this works and people can follow. It can be anybody, you know, an individual who has some means. We could do it together. We could go raise some money right now. Okay, let's make it me. Okay. It's like I want to, or, or you, Andrew Ross Rookin, you're going to create a spec, yep. and you have a goal of raising, I don't know if you have to have a goal in advance, $500 million. Yep. And you call up your friends and you say, I'm starting a spec. It's the new hot thing. It's crazy. It's amazing. And you'll get rich with me. Mm-hmm. And then I ask you the question, okay, Andrew, well, what, what kind of company do you intend to buy? Do you have to tell me? Do you even have to know? I don't, I'm not, first of all, I'm not supposed to know. I'm not supposed to know what company I'm trying to buy. I'm or all, or even, even the industry. You know, no, there are people who will say, yeah, with a specialty, they'll say, uh, in my case, maybe they say, I'd go buy a media company. So I'm going to look, I'm, I, you know, I have an expertise, arguably, or maybe not, we'll see. In the media space, I, I'm going to go buy a, a media company. So people would say, okay, Sorkin, I'm going to give you the money. Um, and you then have effectively 24 months. It's actually, it really, it's like a, a sprint. You, and it, it, there's a deadline. Because if you don't, interestingly, if you don't spend the money in that 24-month period, you have to return it. In fact, you, you lose then. But, is that, but that, what, what, what requires the time limit? It's just the way the, 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 the instrument, if you will, is effectively set up. Arguably, I guess they, they could make it three years, four years, five years if they want. You effectively, though, provide interest on the investment they've given you if you can't find an investment. So it's actually for, for the people investing in these things initially – they're not really long-term investors. Most of these guys are just, it's a financial play for them. The attractiveness of it is the wherewithal of the person starting the SPAC. And in your case, potentially, I'm knowledgeable about media. Someone else might be knowledgeable about tech, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's, it's a little bit, people are putting money in the SPAC on spec. Can I, can I say that? That's exactly what's happening. And then part of the reason why you're seeing so many celebrities, big names trying to do this, People in business, everyone, you know, Colin Kaepernick has a SPAC. A-Rod's got a SPAC. Everybody's got a SPAC. In fact, it's a terrible, terrible line. But on Wall Street, uh, there's a running line going that says, I know more people uh, who have a SPAC than who have COVID. Uh, you know, but I'm bummed, but not really. So anyway, the, but, but the reason they're doing this is because if they find an acquisition target, they get to keep 
20% of the money that was put up initially. It is, it's, it's like the greatest deal around. Well, so when, when you call me to set up your SPAC, do you have to put a dollar into it? I do have to put a little bit of money into it. Yes. I have to- But not 20%. But not to, no, 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 no. I, I put, put in a tiny, tiny, tiny amount just to show I have a little bit of skin in the game. But I don't really have any skin in the game, of course. No, this is this is a this is a this so, is a cash so how, grab. How could this? How ordinary people should be worried about this? How can this affect the economy? Well, a, a, bub, a bubble situation. I don't, a bub- Look, I think where the person on the street should be worried is you have a lot of companies going public that don't have real earnings, don't have real revenue, and you have a lot of these quote unquote sponsors, the people who are, are putting these spacs together, who go out on TV, they put out press releases, they're on social media trying to tell the public when they do buy some company how great it is. And I think people should just be wary because these quote-unquote sponsors who are arguably saying, hey, I'm here, I vetted this thing, I'm buying in, I'm an investor in it, aren't really any of those things. They've they've gotten 20% of the company for free, effectively. And most of the time, they intend to sell their shares within six months to a year far earlier than any of the projections that these companies are making about what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, and I would imagine, just thinking about this off the top of my head, when you have a two-year deadline and you get to month 20 and month 21 with the prospect of having to return all of your investors' money, that maybe you don't make the most intelligent and best decisions about your acquisition. Exactly. In the days leading up to the to the deadline. And look, we right? have hundreds of billions of dollars chasing, you know, not enough companies effectively that are sustainable businesses that should be doing this. And I think one day uh, the next pre will be subpoenaing lots and lots <laughs> of emails that are going to show lots of misbehavior around what they know. and Because what there's an incentive to misrepresent when representations have to be made, even though fewer representations have to be made in this context, because there's a lot of money to be made and there's a lot of loss to be avoided. And I guess, I guess it's great to be a fish in the sea um, who's being sought out by a SPAC because your valuations are going to go way up. Well, and that's the thing. Your valuation will go way up. And a, a lot of venture capital-backed companies are using this moment effectively to try to get out as quickly as humanly possible. I mean, there's a rush to the... If you own a business, there's a rush to the exit. This is your, this is your shot. However, of course, you know we're already starting to see a lot of the stocks of these companies are starting to fall. So um, we'll see. we'll see who ends up uh, holding the bag. Can you explain in 60 to 90 seconds this whole business of- it Takes me 60 to 90 seconds to, to clear my throat. <laughs> so this craziness with GameStop, which is a retail store chain, chain store, which presumably would not have a brisk business during the pandemic. Lots of people, the hedge funds, we talked about hedge fund folks a few minutes ago, have been short on GameStop, meaning- they're placing a bet that revenue and profitability will go down at that store chain. And then some other group of folks said, screw that, we're going to go long. And that's going to hurt the hedge fund folks. Some people say it was brilliant. Some people say it was rogue. Some people say it was reckless. Some people say it sends a message. What the hell is really going on? I feel like I've asked you this form of question three or four times. What the hell is going on? So what's happening here is basically GameStop has long been assumed to be like the blockbuster of our era, which is to say, great at one time in a bricks and mortar world, but long term is going to struggle because people are going to download their games, not going to show up at a store. So the value of the company uh, had gone down. 
uh, but was still relatively high. And so there were a number of big hedge fund professional investors who said, this is nuts. And they started shorting the company, expecting the value to, over time, be much lower. At the same time, there was a group of investors online, might be described as a retail audience that's on Reddit and elsewhere, who say two things. One is that they actually believe in GameStop, um, and some of them genuinely believe that the business can be improved. Um, But another very clever group said to themselves, you know what? There's so many shares that effectively are being held short. And and we can talk about what it means to, or how you short a company, but so many people betting against it that there's a way effectively to have what's called a short squeeze, that if that if so if enough people buy the stock and go long at the same time, you can actually create a almost self-fulfilling prophecy that will go even higher because those who have sold the company short effectively have to rebuy the shares. It's a little bit in the weeds, it's a little complicated, but and therefore it will it will effectively press the price even higher. And we will stick it, we will stick it to the man, we will stick it to the suits. Uh, by doing this. And we will we will demonstrate just how screwed up Wall Street really is. And so that's what happened. You had a group of people go to Reddit, uh, get on the get in the markets and start buying and buying and buying and buying to the point where a number of hedge funds lost billions of dollars on their short bets. Now, the stock is so high today. I mean, it's 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 out to me. It defies logic and sense, but it sort of is representative of, of this moment uh, that we're in in the markets, and and also the power of social media to sort of bring people together. It used to be, and look, you used to look at these things with hedge, hedge funds. Used to hang out, have dinners together, and they would get together and push the price of stocks. And these guys are saying, we can do that too. Andrew Ross Sorkin, thanks for making the time and explaining so many things to me. Oh, goodness, thank you for having me and for explaining so many things back to me. Let's do it again. My conversation with Andrew Ross Sorkin continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So I want to end the show this week with a little bit of a follow-on to what I said at the end of the show last week where I talked about the sale of the company to Vox Media, thanking folks, bidding farewell to Ann Milgram, and at the end, thanking my brother, who made all this possible. And I thought, what better way to follow up on that discussion than by asking my brother to be on Stay Tuned. And so he's my special guest at the end of the show. Vinny, are you here? Hey, how are you? How are you? Now, can I just at the outset ask you, do you prefer to be called kid brother or baby brother? Ah, uh, boss brother. Boss brother. Boss brother. So you, you're not my boss anymore. True. I think True. officially. It's unfortunate. Did it, did it fulfill some childhood fantasy to be my boss? Yeah. Ever since I was five. <laughs> you, yeah. you said that a little bit too enthusiastic. Yeah, ever since I was five. I, you know, was when you were five, you used to say, I, I believe you would say things like, you're not the boss of me. Exactly. You're very specific. No, because it was as with the whole remote control, as you as you like to told your audience last week. We used to fight about the remote control. You used to win more than I did. You were mom and dad's favorite. I was and, not. Uh, I was not. You know, so this is my mom revenge. and dad are going to listen to this. You can't say I, that. They know. Everybody knows. So uh, no, no, no. That's my not, revenge. No, that's no. not true. Okay. How did you get me to to do a podcast? 
I don't know. Did I get you to do a pod? If you remember, your voice got very high there. Why did your know, voice get so high? I know it did. It did because I'm just trying to remember back. So remember, let me refresh your record. So I got fired. Yeah, you remember that, right? You're aware of that. I do remember that. I think you read it in the in the papers all day on CNN. That was breaking news. Yeah, and then you and I had a conversation not long after that about what I might do next. And I'm trying to remember how the podcast was. It my idea or your idea? You may not remember that prior to this discussion about you joining our media company. Oh yeah, at, at one yes, at some point in the future, we discussed. One day, I would I would have to leave. Although I never really fully expected that I would <laughs> I would ever leave. That this was an option. I remember that now. Yeah, you convinced me when I was at Amazon trying to figure out what to do next. You were one of the folks that influenced me to to go into media. I don't know if you remember. You said I was like I was next. Yeah, you said media. Go to go to media, media. So you can have an impact. You can uh, influence. Did you have podcasts already at the company? No. My recollection was we chatted. We wanted to get you involved. I wanted to get you involved certainly in some capacity, and we were trying to figure out you know how to do it. Because I was your brother or because you thought I was a cash cow? I thought you'd be good. I thought you'd be good. I knew you'd be good. And you didn't want to have to wear any makeup. So we talked about the video. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this. Oh, you really wanted me to do video? Yeah. I wanted you to do video. Yeah, I'm not, and this no. is before I, um, I decided to be a commentator on CNN. Yeah. So this was like sort of let's go slow. Let's try something that's a little easier. No makeup on your own schedule. And uh, that's what we did. That was my recollection of how we started. And then did you expect it to do as well as it did? I don't think I was stretching it to think that you'd be excellent um, for a bunch of different reasons. And I'm not just trying to, you know, brag about you here or make you feel good, but you're, you're a missionary and as opposed to a mercenary. And what I find is that missionaries, when they're doing new products or any product at all, the best products come from them. And you care, you know, you care about your audience, you care about delivering a great product more than the financial part. And so I knew that the product would be excellent. I knew you'd be really good. Uh, what I didn't know, by the way, is this soothing voice you have. I didn't realize uh, afterwards- It's the like, voice you hated. It's the voice you hated. I didn't know hated. this. If I had known that, yeah. Preet has this soothing voice. Now, that was something I didn't know. It's nice of you to say all that now, and I think you were optimistic, and you have faith in me, just like I have faith in you. I've invested in every single one of your, <laughs> every single one of your companies, and always will, because I think you're the best business mind I know. But, you know, it was still a leap of faith and a good bit of confidence you had in me. And, you know, sometimes it's awkward for relatives to work together. Yeah. But I don't know. You know, we've, we've had a pretty, I don't think, I don't think, I think we've not had one fight, not right? one fight or argument. No. People might not believe that, but it's- Not one. Not one. It's true. Because I'm, I'm a very easygoing guy. <laughs> no, I think- <laughs> I'm a very I mellow think guy. Have, I think we've been, it, it hasn't had any, to your point, no disagreements, no arguments, no fights, no awkward- moments. And yet, I mean, I don't know, just, just, I'm paranoid a little bit that, you know, was there something lurking beneath the surface that made you want to offload the company to Vox? So you didn't have to be my boss anymore? No. Okay. No, no. I just wanted to get that on the record. You told your audience why we did that. I'm wondering if you maybe could give a minute of your own thoughts as to, as to why this is a great thing and what the future holds for us with Vox Media. Well, I got to know Jim Bankoff at, at Vox Media a couple of years ago, and we kept in touch. And we had a conversation in the beginning of this year about our respective companies and, and what they were doing. And, you know, I just, I have a lot of respect for Jim. And when I've sold, you know, a few companies in the past, the biggest thing for me and that I've found is the culture fit. You know, when you're going into a new company or if you're going to sell your company to someone, it's a marriage. And you have to connect and click and you have to have respect for the party 
that you're going to marry. And so that was the big, a huge piece of this was Jim and Vox and those people over there are good people and they're similar. And um, we got along really well. So I thought that was, you know, the first piece. I think the second piece was just tactically now as a business. I thought that it was a great fit. You guys, you and your team provide, produce super high quality journalistic content and it fit, you know, really well with Vox's mission and what they do really well. And they have a lot of resources. It could get you a lot more audience. And I think you could get, go faster, a little bit faster with them than you could have been with us. How hard is it to um, turn a startup into a successful company? Hard, hard free. You know, now you now you, you we were part of it, I think. Yeah, but I'm lucky. Right? So I did it one time and, and, and it worked out. In the industry, I mean, not, I'm not really a business person. In the industry, and you've been, you know, I don't know if people know, but you know, you went to law school too. We both went to Columbia Law School and then you stopped practicing law. Although you're still an excellent lawyer. I can, I can see your legal skills still at work from time to time. But having been out there and raised capital to start businesses, including diapers.com, which you sold to Amazon, maybe not everyone knows that story. What's the rate of success for the average startup? Look, most startups fail. I think over 90% fail. And then I think a much smaller percentage, maybe one in a thousand have the success that you had. Popular audience, millions of people listening or enjoying your product and then having a successful exit. So the odds are stacked against you. I think the hardest thing in doing these things is, and now again, that you've been part of it, is that you know, you, you're building something from scratch. You don't always know what you're doing. It's like trying to ride a bike. And at the same time, you're often facing extinction. Like on a regular basis, you know, you really don't know if you're going to make it. And so emotionally, that can be pretty challenging because, you know, you're in this gray scenario and you are responsible for a lot of people, your employees, your investors, and you just don't know if you're going to make it. And so being able to kind of navigate that is, is challenging. At the same time, it's, it's also super exciting. You have control of your destiny. When you succeed, it's extremely rewarding, as you have, you know, because you've beaten the odds. And so there's nothing I would rather do, but it's, I mean, I do think it's one of the hardest things that you can do, which is to do these startups. What do you think the future of digital media is, or media generally? Well, I think what you're starting to see is this consolidation between a lot of these players. And I think you're going to see more of that. I think you're going to see a lot of companies go public or try to go public via the SPAC market. You've seen over the last couple of years, you know, the really good media companies have survived. Some have had to, some unfortunately have, have gone away. And I think um, with this consolidation, I think you're going to see some strength. So I'm optimistic about it. The platforms keep emerging. You know, you see podcasts, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago. I guess they existed, but look at where they are now. Anyway, Vinny, I'm, I'm sorry it took three and a half years to have you on the show. You know, in fairness, I have asked you before and you declined because you're, you're more shy than people realize. But it's been wonderful. It's been great. You know, I often say to people, if you can work with people who are your friends, which I always have or tried to, there's nothing better than that. And, and I was kind of wrong. The only thing better than that is working with your family. Oh, if you get along like we do. So thanks. Keep in touch. You keep in touch. And, and thanks. <laughs> I'm going to say. And I, I love say you, thanks bro. too. Yeah, I love you too, man. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Andrew Ross Sorkin. If you like what we do, 
rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.